0: I'm Caleb Zachron, assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in American Studies. Today I'm speaking with Kate Meser, professor of history at Northwestern University. We're discussing her book, Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement, From the Revolution to Reconstruction. This book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History and recipient of the AHA's Littleton Griswold Prize in U.S. Law and Society. Kate, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. You know, th- this was a, a really fascinating book. So before jumping into the book, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: So as you said, I'm a professor at Northwestern University where I've been teaching since 2005. Um, I I got my PhD in American Studies at University of Michigan. And um really spent a lot of time in my career until now um, focusing on like the Civil War and Reconstruction era. Um, And I also am co-editor right now with Greg Downs at UC Davis of a journal called The Journal of the Civil War Era. Um, But in this book, I had some questions, I guess, that I wanted to answer that, that made me go earlier in time, which is, I think, a thing that a lot of historians end up doing is kind of some historians go forward in time, but a lot you know, sort of think, well, I want to know more about the origins of the thing that I know a lot about. So this book took me um, for the first time into earlier, uh, earlier U.S. history, you know, starting kind of with the period of the American Revolution and then working its way forward so that as you imply, the book ends with like the Civil War reconstruction.
0: You know, this book, as you say, is about the first first civil rights movement in America. Uh, And you know, I'm wondering, you know, what exactly did civil rights entail in the first half of the 19th century? Uh, For example, did the cause of civil rights encompass political rights, rights for women, uh, other rights?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in the the first part of the 19th century and even after the Civil War, um, when people said civil rights, they typically were not referring to the right to vote um, or hold office or to jury service. So the rights to vote, hold office, and jury service were kind of cordoned off and considered political rights at this time. Whereas civil rights were typically associated with um, kind of the right to be safe in your physical person, a right to personal mobility, to be able to move from place to place without being constrained, and then rights associated kind of with property and contract. So the right to own property, the right to kind of contract, which is associated, you know, oftentimes with property, um, and then to defend those rights to own things um, in court, so access to the court. So civil rights. Um, were, you know, in some ways what we might consider to be considered more like fundamental rights than what people in the 19th century considered to be uh, like more advanced rights, like the right to vote and, and, and hold office. And that's part of how they could like justify denying, for example, free women the right to vote is they would say, well, those are those are rights that all people have. Those are just rights that, uh, you know, to which certain extra special members of our society are entitled. So, Um, That's the general kind of division between civil and political rights as people understood it in the 19th century.
0: In the first chapter, you tell the story of John Burns, a free black man from Virginia, a slave state at the time who moved to the free state of Ohio in 1813. Uh, And I think that this is just a a really great illustrative uh, profile of some of the experiences that that a person at that time would have experienced. So I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about him and and what uh, he might have faced.
1: Yeah, I mean, so... Yeah, I use the story of John Burns to kind of try to explain and um, make concrete the kinds of conditions that free African-Americans faced um, as they tried to, to migrate into a place where they could have a better life, let's say, than or they thought they could have a better life than in their home community or home state. So in the example of John Burns, which is a it's it's not a very atypical example, it's a pretty typical kind of situation. Um, He became free in Virginia. He was from Virginia. He was enslaved. He became free in Virginia, and um, he went to the local county courthouse in Virginia to get his free papers, which would be, you know, essentially proof that he was legitimately free um, and that, you know, and so this paper um, would be stamped with a kind of official stamp of the county clerk, and then the county clerk would hand John Burns, a paper that he would be able to carry with him. And then the county clerk would also have a book in which he would write the record of having had ha, that John Burns had been here, he proved his freedom, and we issued him a free paper. And so Burns, let's say, um, wants to migrate to Ohio, um, which, and if you think about geography at the time, um, actually, it escapes me right now what county John Burns was from. But some places in Virginia, before West Virginia existed, You know, the state of Virginia went all the way up to include what's now West Virginia. So, you know, there were parts of Virginia that were very close to Ohio, just across the Ohio River, and other parts of Virginia were further away. But there was a fair amount of migration of uh, African-Americans from both Virginia and Kentucky into Ohio because it was really close by. So John Burns would have had to um, travel through some parts of Virginia. He would have risked being stopped by white people. Any kind of white person was sort of deputized, or any any person really, uh, was deputized to stop an African-American person who was traveling and sort of demand that they show their papers um, that they were free, or else if they were enslaved, that they had permission of their enslaver to be traveling on the road. So he would have had to safely get through um, Virginia without being you know, stopped and detained by someone who wanted to send him back uh, or or even kidnap him and and sell him legitimately into slavery. Um, and by the way, I mean, on this journey for for a person in 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 his shoes, um there was always the risk that somebody would steal your papers. um or you know, you would show your papers to someone to prove your freedom, and that person would take them out of your hand and tear them up um or run away with them, or that they would get lost. And so there's a lot of um, precarity to this journey um that that people like in, in John Burns's situation would have faced. So and so then let's say that he migrated he makes it to the Ohio River and he crosses the river and now he's in the free state of Ohio. Um so there are some really good things about that. Um, early on um the Ohio Supreme Court um actually it was after Burns migrated, but but Ohioans, white Ohioans were not particularly sympathetic to uh, people from slave states who would come into the free states and try to kidnap people. Um, and so he already was on slightly kind of safer ground than he would have been in Virginia for some in some ways. But then he would have, because of what are called the Ohio Black Laws and many of these um, free states on the southern border in the Midwest, so Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana had these laws, um, a, a black person migrating into the state would then have to take their free papers to a county clerk and show them and pay a fee in order to register as a resident in the state. Um, and that again would be sort of fraught in the sense that uh, you may or might not still have your papers with you. You had to pay a fee, so you had to have some money with you. The law uh, in Ohio actually said that you had to have two freeholders vouch for you. In other words, two landholders had to kind of say that if you became a public charge, they would pay for any any money required to kind of free your upkeep. So you had to Somehow, make connections and and get these people to kind of vouch for you. Um, and so this was a really onerous process. And um, I was thinking about it a lot when i was when I was writing this book. And then one of the things that was particularly um, poignant and made a really big impression on me was that in the ohio um, it's called the Ohio History Connection, but it's like in columbus, ohio, the the major historical society and state archive, they actually had, Um, A set of freedom papers in the archive um, that in the archive now they're um, they're unfolded and kind of flat and they're in folders. But you can see the marks of the paper having been folded essentially into ninths, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. So you can you can really see the vestiges of how this paper would have been folded up small enough to put in someone's pocket to carry with them. To use in these kind of situations, and so the concreteness of that really made me want to describe describe it for readers.
0: Yeah, following up on on that point, um, this is sort of taking taking aside from the actual contents of the book, but I would love to hear a little bit about the the research that went into it. Uh, you know, maybe the archival work or also secondary sources that were uh, important for for your research.
1: Yeah, I mean, the research for this was. Uh, Interesting and wide ranging um, and dynamic in the sense that during the course of the period that I was working on this book, for example, certain things that had not been digitized when I started working on it became digitized. I mean, one example of that is like when I was in Ohio at the uh, in Columbus, I was looking at bound volumes of the proceedings of the Ohio state legislature, like, you know, sort of basically like the, um, you know, the the minutes of the Ohio legislature, the state and uh, the House and Senate. And later on, when I was still working on the project, those volumes were digitized by Google Books. Like, I really don't think that they were available, you know, and there I was in Columbus paging through them. And there's an experience associated with looking at the hard copies that's not really replaceable by uh, looking at it online, not to mention the fact that it's easier to use the index when you actually have the book on hand. Um, But anyway, and then another uh, one really interesting research experience I had was at the Massachusetts State uh, Archive. Because I hadn't really known, there's a fair amount of the book, which we'll probably get into, um, that has to do with uh, black sailors and the response, particularly in the state of Massachusetts, to the like incarceration of black sailors who were from that state um, in southern ports. And I hadn't really known about the extent of that issue. Um, I knew about what are called the Negro Seamen Acts. And some people have written about the southern kind of perspective on those, like why states pass these kind of laws. Um, But but not a lot had been written, almost nothing about how in coastal Atlantic coastal states, a lot of people actually really galvanized to protect the rights of free black sailors from those states. And they used constitutional arguments to try to do that. And anyway, I didn't really know the extent of that until I was in the Massachusetts State Archives, um, where they had certain documents that were labeled um, that they were about, um, you know, the issue of the rights of the citizens of the state. And so nothing about the cataloging of the documents suggested that these were documents about African-Americans um, because it didn't say the rights of Black citizens of the state. And that was actually, uh, I think, a kind of principled decision on the part of the whoever was cataloging and archiving these. But anyway, so it was kind of like, once I realized that that was an issue and that there were certain words you would have to use in order to find these documents and ask for them at the archive, then all of these things came into view that I hadn't known about before. Um, so anyway, and then, I, you know, I also did do a lot of research in um, digitized newspapers, um, which are just a really amazing treasure trove that are more searchable than they used to be when they were not, you know, digitized. Um, and they were on, they were available, but they were on microfilm. They were harder to get. You couldn't search in the same way. So yeah, that's, that's a little snapshot of it.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful. I'm sure, I'm sure listeners will love to hear that. I, I know many listeners are, you know, graduate students or historians or scholars themselves. So Uh, And they always say uh, whenever I talk to them that they love to hear about people's process. Um,
1: Happy to talk about that. I love talking about it.
0: You know, it's always fun, you know, the art, you know, I, you know, for the people who love going to museums and looking at old books, Um, (laughs) but uh, to to sort of follow up on that, uh, on the uh, John Burns uh, narrative, we were talking a little bit about the, uh, the laws that he would have faced having to register and have, uh, have neighbors that guarantee that he's not going to become a vagrant or public charge. Uh, you know c- could you talk a little bit also about you know other racial laws in free states other um, other other black laws uh, that uh, would have uh, impacted uh, free people at this time?
1: Sure I, so there so one of the challenges of, uh, of this book was there's a lot of diversity in uh, what kinds of policies and laws, the northern states had with respect to free African Americans, and so um, you know, I tried to provide a sampling of examples and to talk about the examples that seemed to me to be most important. Um, and so, uh, Ohio. So, so the the situation in the what well, was called the Old Northwest, but some people call it the Midwest now. Um, the Northwest Ordinance, which was passed in 1787. Declared that slavery was outlawed in the Northwest Territory, um, which is the current day states of uh, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Um, and you know, sidebar is that slavery already existed in some places within that territory. So um, the French had had um, French colonists had had slavery in those areas. Um, British colonists had had slavery in those areas. And after American independence, there were still you know, some sort of white Americans who um, held enslaved people, held people in bondage in those areas. So there was also a process of not only, you know, was there this national ordinance that said that slavery can't exist here, but then the people on the ground actually had to kind of grapple with uh, what that would mean. And there were some people who wanted to try to retain slavery, uh, particularly in Illinois. But in any case, um, slavery, I think the Northwest Ordinance put slavery on the road to Uh, extinction in that territory. It was just a matter of when. Uh, Meanwhile, Ohio was the first of the states to be carved out of that territory to come in as a state. Um, And so with Ohio statehood, you you know, you sort of you get Ohio statehood, I think, in 1803. And then the state legislature immediately starts passing laws like the ones that we were talking about that impinge on the freedoms and the basic civil rights of free African-Americans. Um, And those include not just the registration laws, but also laws that prohibited African Americans from testifying in court cases involving white people. Um, As public education developed in these states, they developed uh, public schools for, they would say, for white children only. Um, Schools were funded on the basis of the white population in the community, not taking into consideration the black population. And then by state constitution in these states, black men were disenfranchised. So the vote, the right to vote was for white men only. And so you had this kind of uh, panoply of different kinds of policies that were um, explicitly discriminating against, um, against free Black people. And the Ohio model, there was some variation. But what Ohio did kind of set the stage for what Indiana and Illinois would later do as states. So yeah, that's the general configuration of of kind of what was going on in those uh, Midwestern states.
0: Pivoting to, to federal law for, for a moment, uh what is the privileges and immunities clause in the constitution and why did it become a flashpoint of debate in the 1820s
1: so a lot of the discussions about the rights kind of race and the rights of free african-americans that i write about happen at the state level because in this period after the american revolution under the original constitution like in other words before reconstruction um, these questions about race and rights were mostly adjudicated at the local level. Or when I say adjudicated, I mean like policies were made at the state and local level. And there really wasn't any kind of federal, um, for the most part, with the exception of the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which we're about to talk about, there wasn't really any um, anything in the United States Constitution that people could refer to when they were objecting to laws like the Ohio Black Laws. Like There wasn't an obvious thing that that kind of said that this these laws were unconstitutional under the United States Constitution. So there was really not a way to make an appeal outside of the state. So what you had to do was try to push the state government to repeal those laws and, you know, or, you know, you can try to push the state legislature to repeal them or push a state Supreme Court to over declare that they're unconstitutional, typically under the state constitution. So the one place that I found in the United States Constitution that people were able to make recourse to was what's called the Privileges and Immunities Clause, or sometimes it's called that, um, in the original Constitution. So this is in Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. It's in a part of the Constitution that deals, Article 4 in general, deals with interstate issues. So these are some provisions in the United States Constitution that are intended to kind of smooth relationships among the states considering that the constitution gives a a whole lot of power and authority to the states um you know the framers of the constitution could have anticipated that there would be points where states might come into conflict and so a lot of what's in article 4 has to do with mediating those providing a framework for mediating those conflicts yeah so um, the privileges and immunities clause in the original constitution's article 4 section 2 says the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. And, um, you know, I often talk about this clause and and say, you know, okay, for one thing that's really clear about it is it says the citizens of each state. So it's it's clearly like referring to state citizenship, which is something that we often don't think about. Like, you know, we think about citizenship as being a kind of national status. But clearly, state citizenship was on the radar of um, the people who were making the Constitution. And it was on the radar of people in the early American republic. Um, And so this clause, though, being in the US Constitution, it's about um, what do state citizens get? What are they entitled to when they're in other states? So it kind of invokes like interstate travel. And if you're a citizen of one state, are you entitled to certain privileges and immunities and you are in other states? And what might those be? and this gets litigated in the early united states around oftentimes around um like white men doing business and kind of wanting to go to another state and conduct business and maybe another state that's not their home state says well we only reserve the privilege of certain kind of business practices for the residents or citizens of our state and so you know it's these questions of like if i'm a resident of new jersey can i open a business in delaware and things like that however Um, that clause was an area of the U.S. Constitution that people who cared about the rights of free African Americans could appeal to. So they could say, and they did say in the 1820s, um, well, free black people who are residents of New York or Massachusetts, um, those states consider them citizens. And so aren't they entitled to certain kinds of basic privileges and immunities when they travel to other states? And so it's very, very interesting to see how Um, Americans, Black Americans, and some white allies begin to kind of refer to the Privileges and Immunities Clause, Article 4, Section 2, to say, like, when we're traveling from place to place, if my state considers me a citizen, then I should be able to have certain kinds of rights when I'm in other states as well. And this is really um, a hot issue that's debated um, on and off, but pretty consistently from the 1820s until the Civil War.
0: I was wondering... uh... If you could talk a little about the uh, the pr- predicament of Gilbert Horton, because uh, I think this is another great illustrative uh, sort of story uh, to talk about this period.
1: Sure. yeah. So Gilbert Horton was a um, a free black citizen of the state of New York um who was a sailor. Uh, as it happens, he would, like many uh, black men from the from the east coast of the United States, he worked as a sailor in what's sometimes called the coastwise trade. Um, Basically, there were a lot of ships going up and down the Atlantic coast, many of them, you know, doing commerce. And so they would um, sail from, let's say, New York City down to a place like Charleston or Savannah, deliver goods, pick up things, often cotton or indigo, whatever those staple crops that southern uh, enslaved laborers are producing, um, and then bring them back up north or bring them over to England. And so there are a lot of black men who free black men from the north who work on ships like that. And Horton um, was on a ship, worked on a ship, got off his ship when he disembarked in, um, I believe it was Norfolk, and then made his way up to Washington, D.C. He was actually in Georgetown when he was picked up by a local constable and a white man who kind of like exerting this power that people had stopped him and said, you know, essentially like, show me your papers um, and Horton evidently was not carrying free papers that satisfied like these people's curiosity about whether he was a free person or, um, you know, running away from slavery. So they threw him in jail. Um, and then according to the law, what they had to do was advertise that this person, Gilbert Horton, is now in the Washington jail. Um, he They say he claims he's free. Uh, And they obviously I mean, this is part of the kind of it's partly part of the law, but it also implies like the amount of suspicion that free black people were subjected to. They say, well, in the ad, he claims he's free and we need for his owner to come forward um, or else, according to law, he will be sold into slavery, which was also the law at the time in in the District of Columbia. Um, So clearly no owner is going to come forward for Gilbert Horton because nobody owns him. He's a free man. Um, But because this advertisement was published in kind of mainstream newspapers, um, it made its way up to Gilbert Horton's community in Westchester County, New York. So people in New York saw the ad and they said, you know, this is Gilbert Horton. We know this guy. His father was there and his father saw the ad and um, said, I'll do anything that's needed to prove his free, prove that he's free and he's a citizen of New York and and to get him out of uh, this jail. And so um, the community, including some prominent white people in Westchester County, um, mobilize to prove Gilbert Horton's freedom and get him released, including petitioning the President, who was John Quincy Adams at the time. Um, but the arguments that they make, going back to what we were saying earlier, are particularly interesting because they do Im- they do say Gilbert Horton is a citizen of the state of New York. They say that he's entitled to certain rights based on the privileges and immunities clause of the original Constitution. Um and, you know, I mean, the the most concrete thing that they're trying to do is just get him out of jail, which they do successfully. And he needs to spent about thirty days in jail when he's released. But the broader thing they're also doing is trying to push this argument about um, the citizenship status of free African Americans and event, and sort of bring it to the federal level. and And what you see after that is that the congressman in the from the United States House of Representative, a guy named Aaron Ward, um, he brings the issue into Congress and tries to get Congress to uh, recognize the citizenship of free black people and kind of investigate the proce- uh, what's going on in D.C. with law enforcement. So it has uh, many outward ripple effects that I describe in the book.
0: Yeah. You talk about uh, the, the discrimination that, that free black sailors from Massachusetts faced. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could talk about that because that's another great example uh, of this kind of interstate conflict. Uh, around, uh, you know, issues of slavery and and freedom.
1: Yeah. So Gilbert Horton's case is sort of, it's a little bit of a sui generis in the sense that it's in the late 1820s. I mean, it's not, well, it's not really it, but it kind of forecasts what's going to become a larger issue in the 1830s and 40s. So um, there, as I was saying, I mean, there are a lot of free black sailors in this coastwide trade Um, Massachusetts is a state that has a pretty active anti-slavery movement. Massachusetts, unlike the Midwestern states we were talking about before, Massachusetts never had these kind of discriminatory laws that required free black people to register. Um, Actually, they sort of did in the late 18th century, but they were never enforced. And then they were kind of silently taken off the books in the early 19th century. Southern states, beginning with South Carolina in 1822, begin to pass laws that are directly targeting Free black sailors, and they're these lawmakers and white folks in the South are afraid of the impact or the influence that free black sailors, both from the United States North, but also from um, the British Empire, from the Caribbean, um, from Haiti, that they're going to be bringing ideas about freedom and equality and rebellion into southern ports. And so, um, South Carolina kind of gets this off the ground by passing a law that says that. Uh, free black sailors coming into the port of charleston on ships have to spend the time that their ship is in port in jail they and this sh- the sheriff or the cu- the authorities from charleston can come on board ships and take people take black sailors and escort them to jail and when the ship is ready to leave um the ship master has to come and get them pick up the sailors who've been spending their time in jail and also pay their jail fees so like actually pay the fee for their food and, and for the guards while they were in there. Um, It's pretty dramatic Um, law, not only, not only because it is so um, hostile to free black sailors and their Liberty, but also because uh, ship owners tend to really hate it because they consider that this is their employment relationship. They feel like these authorities are getting in the way of what they're trying to do with their employees um, and also that um, black sailors worked on loading and unloading the ships while they were in dock. So it also forced um, the, the ship owners to find other people to do that labor. So in any case, um, by there's all kinds of other laws beyond just that one that require um, any free black person, especially from outside, to show papers, to show their passes. And so by the early 1830s, it's clear that a lot of free black northern sailors um, are ending up being arrested or detained in southern ports for one reason or another, whether it's like through these increasing uh, so-called Negro seamen Acts or through other means. And uh, black sailors who had these experiences of being incarcerated, not being able to prove their freedom and, and being kind of unjustly incarcerated and really um, threatened with the, sale of, uh, the threat that they would be sold into slavery, they come back. Uh, Some of them are able to get out by one way or another, and then they come back to their communities and they want to tell their stories. And so um, you have accounts of people um, saying, you know, like, this is what I experienced. I made it back to Massachusetts. But while I was in jail in New Orleans, I met all these free black Northerners who shouldn't be in jail, who did nothing wrong. And there's no way to get them out. They're kind of in this like black box. Um, And these stories really galvanize people. The white people who get interested in this are often already associated with the abolitionist movement, although some are not um some are ship captains who really hate the impingement on the, on their sense of authority over their own ships but anyway so increasingly in the 1830s and um people in Massachusetts in particular um begin to push the state legislature to um take action to try to you know secure the safety of these people who end up in southern jails but at the same time because this is an interstate issue um these people from Massachusetts also raise the issue to the federal level and they make claims They say that the sailors' rights are being, under the Privileges and Immunities Clause, are being violated. Um, They say that these New Rossiman Acts in the South are unconstitutional under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Um, They also, they say, violate Congress's authority over interstate commerce and also Congress's treaty-making authority when it comes to um, foreign powers and the sailors from, like, British ships. Um, And so they try to make these arguments under the US Constitution and, like, elevate this issue to Congress or the federal courts to try to challenge these policies, and you know it's really interesting to see what happens. What happens with that?
0: Uh, I would love to to hear a little bit about you know just the broader abolitionist movement at the time. You you talk you give particular focus to like the abolitionist movement in Ohio in the eighteen thirties and forties. Um, you know what did this look like? What were they advocating for? Was this uh, mostly you know free free black citizens of Ohio at this time? Uh, was it, was it white people too? Do they advocate for the same things? Uh, yeah, feel free to take that in any direction you yeah. like.
1: Well, so one of the things I was trying to do in this book is, um, kind of tell a new story or a new history about some of the things that abolition, people that we would recognize as abolitionists and others were doing. So I think conventionally the focus has been, um, on on how who opposed slavery, how they did it, you know what their ideas were about how to get rid of slavery, how they organized, uh, you know, in communities and things like that, but always with almost always with a focus on what was their approach to slavery itself, which is of course also, I mean, as people know who have um, have studied this or thought about it, when you're talking about people who live in the North or in the free states. And they're attacking slavery, which is exists in the not where they live. Uh, they're facing some, you know, issues about like, well, how do you actually? You might think slavery is a really evil system, but like, how do you actually get rid of it when you know there are these states? Um, you know, your state has no authority. Ohio has no authority over whether Kentucky has slavery, um, and that the federal government, for a variety of different reasons, is not about to interfere with slavery in the states where it already exists. So they can try to get. Uh, people elected to Congress who are eventually going to uh, try to do something that against slavery. But, you know, it's a really, really challenging um, idea to think about how um, Northerners who are very separate from living under slavery can actually do anything to change it and get rid of it. Um, But anyway, but still many, many books and, and stuff have been written about it and it's excellent and they're very good. But like what we haven't paid nearly as much attention to is the ways that a lot of these same people and other people were also really interested in their home, what's going on in their home states when it comes to issues of race and civil rights, right? So even though there was also this struggle about like what the, should happen to slavery, these people, many of them are like really engaged in trying to repeal the black laws in the states that they live in or trying to make sure and secure the safety of black sailors in southern ports. And there's this whole sort of other movement around race and equality and civil rights that I think we haven't known nearly as much about. And that we should know about. And so that's what I was kind of trying to put on the map in this book. Um, You know, so so in terms of like you asked specifically about Ohio, um, Ohio, in terms of the Midwestern states had the largest population in this period, um, the largest white population and the largest black population and the most active and successful abolitionist movement Um, and many. So so there's an an increasingly organized um, black activist movement. And we see it kind of coming together in the second half of the 1830s when um, African-American Ohioans hold their first statewide convention. Um, and one of the things that they're most interested in is talking about how to pers- how to get involved in pushing the state legislature to repeal the black laws. And also, um, you know, very connected to that is trying to get white Ohioans to understand what's wrong with these laws. And, you know, black uh, residents of Ohio were about 1% of the total population of Ohio in this period, and black men could not vote. So they really had if they wanted anything to change, they really had to persuade a critical mass of white people to change their minds because otherwise, how are they going to get it done kind of in politics? And so um, at the same time, you have a pretty well organized white abolitionist movement. Some of them are associated with a thing called the Ohio Anti-Slavery Society, who, unlike the stereotypical kind of white abolitionists who followed William Lloyd Garrison, Uh, they did not eschew politics at all. Like they were actually really interested in politics. They were interested in getting involved in politics, in getting people elected who supported their views. Um, And so they were not at all like the kind of morally abstaining from politics type of abolitionists that we that that Garrison represents um, a lot. And I think a lot of people know a lot less about um, this movement that sometimes is called the political anti-slavery movement, like the people who were I would argue just as committed to uh, or just as morally opposed to slavery and to racial discrimination as the kind of Garrisonians, but in contrast to the stereotypical Garrisonians, they really believed in pouring their efforts into politics as well. And they didn't say, you know, well, because anything to do with the U.S. Constitution and anything kind of subordinate to that, including state politics, is corrupted um, by slavery. So we really should not get involved in that, which was kind of the garrisonian position by the 1840s. These people were were the opposite of that. And um, so, you know, there are a lot of twists and turns about how um, both both uh, Black people who are committed to repealing the Black laws um, and white allies of theirs tried to get that done in places like Ohio and uh, Illinois and Indiana, and they were most successful um, in Ohio, where most of the black laws were repealed in 1849.
0: Yeah, continuing on that theme of, of political uh, power and and building of it, obviously, you know, you you see the emergence uh, of, of the Republican Party uh, and and that the building of a, of a kind of uh, real political movement against against slavery or, or in favor of abolition. Uh, how does the Republican Party gain power? How did that happen?
1: The rise of the Republican Party in Northern politics. And the sort of the the culmination of that in a certain sense in the 1860 election, which is when Lincoln um, is elected to the presidency, which prompts um, South Carolina and a whole bunch of other southern states to secede and form the Confederacy. So it like really prompts on the beginning of the Civil War. Um, you know, as you said, it's a, it's a story many times told. But I think what I would emphasize for our purposes is that what I write about in the book is like how the ideas that had been so important to this first civil rights movement, ideas about racial equality and civil rights, ideas about the idea that, um, you know, subordination of people based on race was wrong um, and that we should not tolerate that. um, Those ideas made their way into kind of the Republican Party mainstream. And so um, I write about like early third party movement so so part of what is the precondition for the emergence of the republican party is like the disintegration of a of a two-party system what what some people call two-party system the the whigs and the democrats were the two major parties for most of this period um and but they're they're sort of unstable coalitions unto themselves um and so in the 1840s you have a kind of preliminary third party movement called the liberty party Um, which Liberty Party activists in, uh, let's say, you know, in the Midwest were totally committed to repealing the black laws. And Liberty Party activists were totally committed to defending black sailors in southern ports if they were in Massachusetts or New York. Um, And so and they were also many Liberty Party people, including um, and this party, actually, although led by white people, really invited black people to be um, part of the party and part of the movement and also supported black men's right to vote. Um, anyway, this party is still a very, very small party. There's like another third party kind of iteration in the late 1840s called the Free Soil Movement. And then kind of both major parties suffer like big uh, kind of schisms. And so that opens the door to the possibility of a of a new major, you could call it a third party, which is the Republican Party. But it really kind of ends up being the new major second party in relation to the Democratic Party by the end of the 1840s. And what I'm saying is that the Republicans end up kind of adopting the vision of racial equality and civil rights that the movement had been putting forward since like the 1820s. Um, And so when the Republicans come into power, it's somewhat surprising, I think, um, to find this because uh, people don't often sort of talk about this in relation to the Republicans. The the main thing that we um, sort of talk about when we talk about the Republican Party's consensus around issues related to slavery is, they, they, they were able to be this big tent party because they opposed the extension of slavery into new territories, and that's what brought them together. Um, but you know, it turns out that many Republicans, including kind of mainstream ones, actually also believed in this principle of racial equality and civil rights. And so when they get into the federal government after 1860, we see a many, many different places where they kind of implement that idea.
0: I, I hope uh, listeners uh, forgive me for sort of skipping over the this Civil War, but you know there, there's tons of uh, stuff written about it. And I think that you know you obviously you, you you get you get into the Civil War, you get into the passage of the Civil Rights Act, Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendment, um, but you know obviously you know the perspective you take as as we've talked about is uh, free states uh, and and abolitionists uh, who have been working uh, in the lead up. So in, in 1868, you know it's Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendment have been passed. Uh, Civil Rights Act. Could they have predicted that this would have happened? Like, mm-hmm. how did this? How did this? How did this even happen? I guess. Like, right. how, how in eighteen sixty eight? How did America get to this place where they fought this? They fought a war. They passed all these laws.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so just to be so just to be clear for for our listeners. So you know, fast forwarding through the Civil War, when you get to. Um, basically 1865 which is the year that the war more or less ended the 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 nation is faced with these questions about like you know sort of bringing the southern states that had seceded back into the union and then also like what kind of a footing does the nation want to be on now and um the the, the, we add three constitutional amendments three amendments to the constitution that are the 13th 14th and 15th amendments and these are these really change the balance of power between um, the federal government and the states. Um, and they they kind of create a federal baseline for individual rights for the first time. So just thinking back to what I said a lot earlier about how a lot of these, the Ohio Black Laws, for example, were not considered unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution because um, there wasn't really anything in the U.S. Constitution that said that states couldn't make laws like that. Well, the 14th Amendment, uh, ratified in 1868 literally, you know, says that uh, no state can deny people equal protection of the laws, which has been widely interpreted to mean you can't have laws that say, you know, um, that black people have to register and and uh, and can't testify in court and things like that. So by the time uh, the 14th Amendment is ratified, for example, you know, that is part of what that is what makes um, these types of laws clearly unconstitutional under the US Constitution. Um, So could someone standing in 1820 have ever imagined that? I mean, I don't know. I think it's really interesting because one of the things that I'm really clear about in the book is um, I'm writing about, I'm kind of writing a prehistory of these federal measures that were totally unprecedented. including the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was the nation's first federal civil rights statute. Like there never was any kind of federal civil rights measure before that. Um, And my book is talking about how those the ideas inherent in like the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment made their way into mainstream politics in the decades before the Civil War. But at the same time, There couldn't have concretely been a Congress that put those measures into law or into the Constitution if there hadn't been the Civil War, which is like a huge break, right? So if we're talking about continuity and discontinuity in history, like the continuity that I'm talking about is the development of a set of ideas across time that literally the same people who were making arguments for racial equality and civil rights before the Civil War, some of those at the most elite level make it into Congress, and they're literally the people who are passing measures like the 1866 Civil Rights Act or the constitutional amendments. But on the other hand, if we're talking about discontinuity, it's like, what are the actual changes in power relations that make that possible? It's the secession of these southern states and the fighting of the Civil War, and then the post-Civil War moment where everything's kind of up for grabs in terms of the Constitution and in terms of how power is wielded at the federal level. And so if you hadn't had that really dramatic break it's quite. It's entirely likely that these constitution, that all of the good thinking in the world would not have led to these federal level measures. At least not at that time.
0: My last question is, you know, how would, when we're looking at any sort of social movement, especially something, you know, like as you said, there's the discontinuity of the Civil War. Like it's unexpected that there would be a secession and that there would be a war, and then that would lead to uh, ultimately abolition. Uh, you know. What is the importance of, you know, anytime there's any social movement, you thinks sort of just like tracing back the long history and seeing the precursors, like how can that help us better understand, you know, the present moment, for example?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to think about it. I mean, I do think that this thing about change versus continuity and also the ways that unexpected developments that may be outside the control of the social movement can present opportunities for the social movement to make to do its thing to do what it wants to do or sort of push forward an agenda that's really important right so like you have like people agitating for change of various kinds and then an opportunity might come along that is not related necessarily or not directly related to what they did but it can provide a moment to sort of say okay now we can grab on to some power and try to do it so that's one um another is about um coalition building so i would say that one of the things i thought a lot about in this book was um that the people who were involved in this movement did not um, always agree on what their end goals were and um, particularly black activists were very comfortable with arguing that um there should be you know no uh, there should be racial equality in civil rights but also in political rights they should black men should have the right to vote and hold office and serve on juries no question and a lot of the white people in this movement were more reluctant or sort of hesitant on that um and yet you know they worked together for common purposes insofar as in the places where they agree um and they were able to get some things done so that seems important and the last thing i would say is um just the duration of these kind of struggles so that you know You know, anything that people do in a particular moment to try to make change or put forward certain kinds of ideas, it is actually not within our capacity to really know what the impact of that is going to be. And it's tremendously frustrating to sort of think like that you might not ever get to see, you know, if you're involved in a social movement that you might not get to see successes, but there might be successes in the future that are like beyond the span of one person's lifetime. And yet I feel like that is um, really important to keep in mind. It's sobering, it's kind of depressing, but it's also that um, the seeds, the groundwork that you lay in a particular moment, uh, even if it feels frustrating or you're defeated in that moment, you never know whether you're actually sprouting things that are gonna help, help what the, the goals that you want be realized in the future you don't know. And so it makes it feel, in some ways, it's sort of sobering and depressing, but in other ways, I feel like it, it is a, it's is its sort of charter to um, continue that kind of work because it's, it can be valuable in ways that we cannot necessarily know about in our own moment.
0: Yeah. I, I think that those are, those are all great, great takeaways. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was uh, great, great speaking with you. Um, and yeah, it was, it was wonderful.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it.